0: This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Flair on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: North London is white. Harry Kane and Son Heung-min produce another masterclass. Manchester United, the comeback kings, once again. But a massive week lies ahead for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the club. Jamie Jackson of The Guardian joins us on that. And Greg Vanny walking away from Toronto FC is one of the best coaches in MLS. What his impact was at the club and where does TFC go from here Former MLSE president Tim Liewicky will join us on the show as well. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here for another edition of A Kick in the Grass. Jeff, Jose Mourinho navigates a three-week stretch against Manchester City, Chelsea, and Arsenal, taking seven of a possible nine points. Are you a believer yet?
0: Well, see, I've been telling you all along that I'm a believer, and I've been trying to... (laughs) I've been trying to steer you away from hitching your wagon to, uh, to Mikel Arteta, if you recall, <laughs> and listeners will recall that I've been on board the Mourinho express for a long time. Uh, look, I'm calling uncle on this. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really calling uncle on this. Uh, I, I still, I, I just can't imagine Jose Mourinho winning with Tottenham. I, I just, the, the combination, there's just too yeah. much really strange history there. But you know, look, he uh, he's got he's got guys like Harry Kane. He's got Song. They they're 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 adapting. Um, Regulon looks like he could be one of the signings of the year. He certainly changed the you know the complexion of that team. Toby Alderweireld has gone from being you know surplus to requirements to a guy who looks like he's absolutely thorough thoroughly enjoying his soccer and you know this i mean they're taking advantage of some injuries to liverpool the manchester city's got some issues with its its strikers and yeah it's they look really good and i, I will say this though about arsenal I, I will say this about arsenal you know w- with all due respect to spurs and josie marino has any team approached a premier league match this year with a more crap strategy than Miguel Arteta. <laughs> I, I, honest to God, I was looking at the numbers. 44 crosses, right? Yeah. 44 yeah. crosses by Arsenal. 32 out of open play. Their best player is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. You know how many headed goals he scored in his career in the Prem? Not many. Three. Three. <laughs> so you are effectively adopting a style of attack that eliminates your best player Never mind that it plays it, it plays completely in, into Tottenham's hands. And and man, look, I, I was on board with a lot of the stuff Arteta did, was doing early. I admit I bought into. I thought he 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 coached a tactical masterclass uh, against Manchester City. He's 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 had matches where he's been absolutely brilliant. I liked some of their acquisitions, but it's the same old story for Arsenal. I look at that midfield, and right now, that might be the ninth. Tenth best midfield in the Premier League. There's just not a lot going on there, and uh, yeah, they're in a world. Of, they're in a world of trouble. Dan, we talked about the sack race, and I, I don't think they would give up on Arteta yet. But let's let's see what happens after the Christmas break. Let's see what happens after the Christmas break.
1: Well, there's there's a couple of things here, and um, you know, I I was kind of surprised after the game to listen to. Jose Mourinho wax poetic about Mikel Arteta, and that's a sign that you're going to be fired if you're Mikel Arteta. <laughs> you never want the uh, it, other it, coach to say,
0: "I like playing against his teams." You know, I enjoy it. You don't <laughs> want to hear that.
1: He he was just like they caused us, you know, all kinds of problems and and all uh, of this stuff, and it it was give me my hip um, waders. You know, like it, it just seemed like for me. Arteta played right into Mourinho's hands. Like everybody on the planet knew exactly how Mourinho was going to set up this game. You know, he's going to park the bus and try to play on the counter and get goals from Jung and son and, and Harry Kane. And that's exactly what he got in the first half. And then they parked it uh, in the second half, taking very few chances. And, you know, he's got the team full buy-in from these guys. I mean, I've never seen uh, such like sacrifice to block shots and everything else. Uh, Like we've seen right now with Jose Mourinho's squad, but you know he knew exactly where the weak points were. Um, Hector Bellerin, you could you know put both goals on him essentially, and you know they they countered down the left flank, and and Bellerin got caught both times. It was just like Mourinho scripted this in his head, and it played out exactly how he wanted it to, but. This is, you know, Arsenal they they've got some decent things going on. I still think, you know, from a philosophy standpoint and and everything else Arteta's got the right ideas. I don't think he's got the squad to do it. This is, you know, and and sure they get Thomas Partey and and they they make a couple of nice signings, uh Gabriel I I still like. Mm-hmm. But Willian and all these things, you know, these these are just, you know, band-aids. Uh, there's there's so much of the squad that still needs to be turned over and My biggest thing about Arteta and and my worry about him is this Obama-Yang issue. You know, he's not getting shots. He continues to play him out on the left flank when it's not working. I know it worked in the Community Shield and the FA Cup, but, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Fewest goals in the Prem right now, Burnley and Sheffield United 5, West Brom 8, Arsenal 10. Uh, Okay, there's way too much talent on this team to be scoring so few goals. They've got to get rid of Lacazette as, as the, the front man, put Obama-Yang there, and figure it out because what that, like that's where this is all falling apart is that finished product. And to not have Obama-Yang in the most prominent position on the field to finish the goals is killing Arsenal right now, and it's going to give them zero chance of even getting back into a Europa League spot at this point.
0: And Danny, look at that midfield. Look at the wasted resources. yeah, Ozil, uh, Ceballos, and, and, mm-hmm. and we can throw Pepe in there as well if, we, if, if we, we really want. None of them. I mean, I would challenge you to find a top five team in the Premier League right now where, other than Pepe, I don't think any of them start. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them start.
1: No, I I agree with you, and and no perfect sign on the other end is Hoiberg, uh, you know, uh, who's been just brilliant for Tottenham this year. I know he's not going to get a ton of the praise, but uh, I've I've really liked his game. The way Ndumbelé has played uh, mm-hmm. after you know a first season at Tottenham to forget, I, I mean Mourinho's just got full buy-in from these guys, and it's it's incredible. And he's got pretty much every manager saying the same thing after every match is like. Uh you know, we had a lot of shots we we played well I, th- I you know on another day if they don't score the two shots on their two goals then then maybe it's a different result which is exact like arteta sounded like a carbon copy of pep guardiola and i think that's what most people think he is anyways but you know it sounded exactly the same after this match mourinho has got managers talking to themselves he's in their heads and uh it, it's wild that we're doing this but it it kind of reminds me of a few years ago now, uh, I guess it was 2015 when Chelsea won the title with Jose back uh, for his second spin with the club and in their second year. Uh, like they didn't have anything spectacular within that squad. You know, they had Diego Costa, who scored 20 goals that year. Aiden Hazard scored, I think, 14 or 15. And that was pretty much it. They, they, they got a little bit of contributions from everywhere else, but it's a far cry from what we've seen from Manchester City or Liverpool. Uh, a solid but unspectacular team, coached well, and they won the Premier League. And Mourinho's kind of got the same vibes going right now with Spurs. It's uh, it's it's incredible, and I I've actually enjoyed watching them, you know, <laughs> with their their commitment to defending, uh, if you want to call it that, these last couple of weeks. But what will decide our Spurs' season for me, Jeff, is the Christmas period where. You know they've got the three matches in seven days. We know that this team is, is not as deep as you know Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester United even, um, and certainly not Manchester City. So those those seven days, you know what they get from Harry Kane and Sun Heung Min in those those three three matches, and how they come out of that stretch, I think will decide a lot of what Tottenham ends up as at the end of the year. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. The other big match saw Manchester United winning 3-1, a comeback victory. Jeff, I saw all of the range of emotions from your Twitter account. Um, <laughs> after a first half to forget, uh, United uh, pulled the comeback once again, just like the week previous. Um, But, you know, they still have the most points collected in the Prem for the calendar year, and despite nine points through five matches in the Champions League, they'll need a result against Red Bull Leipzig on Thursday to make it through. They've also got Manchester City to worry about next Sunday in the Derby. It's an interesting time for Manchester United, to say the least, and joining us now to talk about it, Jamie Jackson of The Guardian. Thanks for this, Jamie. How are you?
2: I'm very good, thank you.
1: It's uh, it's good to have you on again. It's um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for Manchester United here. The results uh, have been mostly positive, but uh, it hasn't really felt comfortable for any time.
2: No, I think I think you characterise it correctly. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is because it's Manchester United, and this is not necessarily you know not deserved or anything, but it, everything is a little bit more magnified, heightened because of the interest. But that's because, as I'm sort of inferring. Um, you know, the interest, the tradition, the history, the expectation, the money, etc. Because when you look at it, really, I mean, you don't know. You actually don't know kind of what United are going to turn up with regard to performance and result. But if you look at the league, if they win the game in hand, because they do have one, they would only be a big two points behind the leaders, which are obviously Spurs um, and Liverpool. So, you know, we go into this game tomorrow uh, at Leipzig. Yeah. In this situation, we're not completely sure how they're gonna play. They beat them 5-0 in the first game. Spoke to Solskjaer earlier today to preview this game. He's in sort of confident mode. Maguire was referenced the Leicester City game, the last game of last season, where you know they needed a result there to um, qualify for the Champions League. They came through that. But you just don't know. I, I you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they came unstuck tomorrow. I don't think it will happen, but just as I keep on saying, it is uncertain. And I think this is the lack of stability. I mean, he said something quite interesting ahead of the weekend game, the one at West Ham. He said, in terms of inconsistency, he said, well, how far back do you want to go? You know, if you go back to sort of post-lockdown when last season resumed, then, you know, we have been consistent because obviously they did really well in that, in that phase. Um, so it's interesting, really. I, you know, you'd like to think they're going to crack it. What I would say is, that I think most people would agree with this, it is the best squad, the most unified squad in terms of different parts, making up a team under squad since Ferguson left, which is sort of now seven years ago.
0: Jamie, ha- having said that, do you think only right now knows what his best 11 is?
2: 100% not. And, and, and this is, you know, this is something I, I maybe mentioned earlier today. Um, To to, to someone discussing um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think one of my my little theories is he needs to get Greenwood inside. basically, you know, not every match, but week in, week out, because I think he just gives them an extra dimension, as basically United did have, um, you know, towards the end of last season. He obviously scored a very good goal at West Ham. The only other goal he scored, which I think might have been against Leipzig, was again a classic bit of Greenwood. And already I'm talking in terms of classic Greenwood, even though he's only a teenager been being the team, but his movement and his he's he's finishing is he's, he's lethal. Um, he may well start tomorrow at number nine because both Cavani and Martial aren't travelling. So it's a straight toss up, really, between Greenwood and Rashford. And Rashford does prefer a wide um, berth. In fact, the, the only time I can really remember Greenwood starting at number nine was in a game against Spurs last December, which Rashford also played. And yes, Greenwood was preferred at number nine. It was the very first time he'd ever played there with Rashford out. Left, so I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way they go. Um, you know, and let, let, let's, let's just sort of see what happens. I mean, I don't know, there, there is a, a fair enough case that because of the Europa League finishing late for them, you know, they're in the semi finals, did that game severely, lost to mid August, and then the truncated season because of Covid, sadly. Um, you know, they are about a month behind, or you know, they're starting to catch up now. They didn't really have a pre season or a proper break, I mean, they didn't at all. City kind of similar. Manchester City, the a team that I cover. Um, but I've always thought that, that sort of the January of this season we're on was 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 a fair time. The way to judge Solskjaer. and so yeah, least you can maybe push that back two or three weeks, but we're kind of approaching that stage. Uh, but I think you're right. I think his team at the moment is still a little bit. Tellez looks good at left back. Wampezaco looks like. I mean, he looked good last season, but he looks very. He looks, you know, he looks the part now. I think for Manchester United, what a defender he is. I think there's question mark over those two as a partnership, that's Linda Loff and Maguire. I think he really wants to get two and Sabie in the team to partner one of those two, you know, on a regular basis, but he just can't quite seem to get him fit or, you know, playing, I don't know, in harness with one of those two well enough. Um, and then Pogba, you know, scores an amazing goal at West Ham, uh, but, you know, he is an enigma and that's a polite way of saying he's too inconsistent, really.
1: Yeah, you know, I was preparing for the interview, and I'm like, how how does Ollie figure out to how to get Bruno Fernandes and and Paul Pogba playing playing well together? Because you know, Pogba comes on against West Ham, and and it's 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 night and day the way uh, United looks, and they go on to win the match. Um, it, it, it just it doesn't feel. I I feel like we're talking ourselves in circles. We've been talking about the same subject yeah, for so yeah. long.
2: No, no, I think, again, you characterise it perfectly. I mean, you know, you you think on paper, but kind of we've had the the on paper and then the on-field manifestation of, you know, of what you think would be great would be Pogba, yeah, playing as one of the central midfielders. Um, Yes, and Fernandez. I mean, Fernandez is good enough to sort of, I I don't think Fernandez is an issue. I'm not saying you're saying that at all. I think it's Pogba, really. Yeah. so I mean, you know, you got Mam de Beek there, who who isn't in Pogba's class, I don't think, but he is something. He is a he is, he is a classy operator. Um, I don't know really. It's it's kind of down to Pogba. I mean, you know, he, he had a cracking World Cup, didn't he? Obviously, they won won it France, and he scored in the, in the final. And he, I don't know if you ever saw that the footage of of him before the game, the final. This is he wasn't the captain, but he was a captain. Sort of discussion, chat, g'ing them up, saying now or never. You know, they'd obviously lost the Euros finals two years before. He'd lost uh, at least one, maybe two Champions League finals for Juventus. You know, he'd been there and lost these big games and he, and he used that. So that's why it's frustrating because someone like me loves him, you know, loves all, all the good things he does and, you know, wants to see him play because he's that good. And you're kind of right because if you could just get him playing like at West Ham, you know, all the time, but it's a bit, you know, then they would be such a lot better. See, but it's a big if, and it's kind of an if that's been disproved. It can't, doesn't really seem to be possible.
1: Now, uh, Fabrizio Romano uh, and uh, had had this quote from Pogba's agent, who actually he said it to Tutosports. Sports. Uh, I can say that it's over for Paul Pogba at Manchester United. This this is just happening uh, here on Monday, um, mm-hmm. and it's still pretty fresh as we talk to you here, Jamie. But uh, is is this? Is, what is this about? Is this just uh, super agent Mino Raiola trying to trying to stir the pot as he as he normally does?
2: Well, obviously, you know, if, if this quote is correct and I'm I'm not for one, one minute saying it's not, but as you say, we just sort of become aware of it the last few minutes. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing because Raiola is let's say an individual operator in the world of football, and actually, you know, football's got a few of those. You know, it's probably the sort of thing that the club I'm almost certain are they're, they're, I'm not spoken to them about this obviously because it's just happened but they, they, their stance may well be well that's that's the agent saying that it's not the player what can we do about the agent? The player is our player You know, he's not the agent's player and why I'm saying this this is what's happened in the past when Raiola has said uh, some things I mean it, it, I'm trying to remember now there's been a few of these so I kind of lose track but I think there's one about maybe criticised Woodward's recruitment of um, uh, uh, Raiola so I I think he may well leave in the summer. He probably would have left last summer, but because of the COVID situation, finances, etc. there was no buyers for him. And I think that's why they got Van Der Beek. They were looking down the track at what was going to happen this coming summer. I think PSG, don't know this for sure, but I think PSG is a kind of favourite or a favourite to, uh, to sign him. It's not, you know, it's not great on the eve of a big match, but to a certain extent, it's a little bit like the boy who, you know, the, the fable, the boy cries wolf. Because Raiola does this occasionally, and, you know, on, on an ongoing basis to a certain extent it, it probably water off a duck's back probably not even an irritation because could just sort of laugh it off maybe privately say well what else do we expect from uh from, from the gentleman but um you know it's maneuvering i mean you know, you know this has been going on for two or three seasons some uh years really about pogba there was not this summer gone but the summer before when they were on the tour well the, the summer they went to australia and, and hong kong and I think Pogba said, was he on a, a promotional thing in Japan saying, might be time for a new challenge or something like that? And here, here we are. It will be two years on from then in the summer. But I do think, you know, if you ask me a slightly different question, has he been a success, I'd say no. I'm not saying he's, he's been a disaster, but he's, he's been a disappointment, I think, Paul Pogba.
0: Jamie, what are you expecting from United in the transfer window?
2: Well, probably <sighs> in January... It's a classic thing really probably i'm gonna say probably nothing but they did get fernandez last um you know last winter window but they they, they, they would well what they need i think and i think they would agree privately they wouldn't say it publicly is it's a center back like an upper mccano who's obviously suspended for tomorrow's game you know the leipzig uh center back but i don't think really i'd be it'd be surprised if they sign anyone in january but then in this going into the summer as i said they've got van der beek pogba probably an outgoing, generate some cash. I'd be interested to see how much they get for him, because obviously he was at the time, I believe a world record transfer, wasn't he? Sort of best part of 90 um, million, or certainly a British record, but he still is. Um, a centre back, and I don't know, there's still this this, this Mason—not uh, Mason, uh, not Mason Green, was J- J- Jaden Sancho deal. Now, can they revive that? And can they make it happen? Or, or by then, Will, will Green would have come on so much there are priorities may layer elsewhere because it's that sort of right hand side position that Sancho you know among other uh, berths across the front they're looking to fill I, I never thought Sancho was the marquee signing and they should have gone for last month I think it should have been centre back. but anyway let- let- let's see what happens there Martial's interesting he- he's a bit in and out really it's not rocket size if you're going to do well at a a top club, and you know, if you're going to win the Premier League and challenge seriously the Champions League, you, you need two two players, really, who, who score 20-plus. Now, I know Rashford and Martial did that last season, but I'm talking about in the Premier League, really, at least one of them 20-plus in the Premier League and another guy like Sterling at so City who gets sort of 18-19. Um, so that might be, a, you know, they may feel Sancho can do that. But Liverpool, apparently, I won't be surprised if Liverpool look at him, although Jota might have um ended that one. But yeah, I think a center back has to be in my opinion the number one priority.
1: Now Bruno Fernandes has played so so well and I wonder at times if um they rely on him too much. But mm. uh, at the end of it all, um it, it seems to always fall back on Ollie. Um and you know you've you've just written the book about Ollie and it he, he's an interesting guy because the results as we mentioned off the top have been good. But do you Mm -hmm. feel the the confidence in him or lack of confidence from, it seems like, the public is due to the fact that, you know, he was just supposed to be a caretaker manager when he initially took over?
2: Well, I mean, I I can tell you one thing. They are very confident in him at the club, which obviously is kind of, you know, who counts with regards to to him staying there and, and, you know, being able to try and have success. Um, I think there's a combination of factors. I think there's a lot of knee-jerk, uh, approach to sort of success in football, you know, you you either the next greatest thing or, or, or you're not kind of um, uh, fashion kind of uh, mode. Um, yeah, there is. A, I suppose there is a little bit of you know he was the caretaker, but you know they, they finished third last season. I'm not sure anyone would have thought you know they'd have finished above Liverpool, or Manchester City. So, that, so that's where they finished. You know, the, the best, the best of the rest, which is obviously not good enough if you're Manchester United generally. But it's a big job, and I think. You know, I do think the way they've responded this season shows kind of what he's building. They lost 6-1 to Spurs. They did that game. That was terrible. I remember sort of writing my match report for the Guardian or the Observer. You know, they couldn't even give a Park's team a game. Obviously, I was exaggerating a bit, but it was fair enough because they'd just been absolutely battered <laughs> 6-1 at home. Um, and they've responded to that. They responded to the absolute, again, kind of uh, schoolboy defending Istanbul, Basak, Sahir. They lost 2-1 there you know, remember the goal from from their own corner, you know, that no one was um, marking Denver bar, blah, blah, blah. And they responded to that. So I think this is, you know, this is the sort of thing that is noted by Woodward and the rest of the hierarchy. The rest of the public, it depends where you look. There is a definite phenomenon where social media can feed the sort of, not the news cycle, that's too strong, but, you know, social media is only a particular cross. So, for example, I don't know, of course, there are some, but I think there is a definite you know, empirical evidence that those who go, and I know people aren't going to, to, to stadium them moment, but those who, who are the sort of diehard, match-going fans are not necessarily the ones on social media who are maybe a little bit more distant and, and aren't as sort of, how can I say it, uh, patient, I suppose, that's a polite way of saying it, uh, loyal maybe, as those who, you know, go week in, week out. Now, as I say, though, though that, that constituency aren't going at the moment because of COVID, I understand that, or oh, they are starting to return. But I do think those who are more considered can see what he's trying to do, and... No, my, 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 I did a previous book which was called A Season They Read About United. And that was all about the trauma of you know Ferguson leaving and uh, Moyes coming in and Van Gaal and Mourinho taking over. And you know it's been a big job. You 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 would say it should have been such a big job, but it, it, it you know taken so long. But I think now finally they've hit upon something. They've got a guy in there who understands the club, walked into the club with an authority of having been, you know a very important player in an amazing sort of 10 or 11 years under Ferguson. He wasn't a first choice all the time, but he was, you know, you don't, you don't be part of Ferguson's squad for 10 or 11 years, obviously scoring that goal, crowned it all off in 99. But you know what I mean? Without being a serious footballer. So he had all that. He knew some of these players, like Pogba, for example, Lingard, you know, from, from when he had the reserve team and they won the title two thousand nine ten. 2009-10, I think it was. And, you know, but not just that, he, he, he does love the club. And I think having done the biography of him and talked to players and also actually people who weren't necessarily players but friends of his he's a sort of human being who hasn't who has had an effect on them like a sort of a i'd almost say a little bit of a defining effect on the way they think about themselves as footballers as people because he's that sort of person he's a very nice guy but he's also someone who's interested in other people now if you're talking about management at the very top level it's really i think a game of yes coaching but also Managing elite stars, and that's about man management. I think he has got that. He's got his own way of doing it, but he is very good at that, just like Mourinho has been and looks like he's doing again, just like Klopp is, just like Ferguson was, Wenger in his pomp. All these guys know how to, you know, the extra one, two, five percent, and I think he has that. So I do give him a good chance. Now, people say to me, Oh, you're only saying that mainly because you've written a biography of him. And I I'm, and I'm sort of respond, Well, yeah, to a certain extent, that's the point, because I've actually researched the guy over a year and a half spoken to the best part of 50 people about him and you know that gives you a little bit of an insight that necessarily and I don't expect anyone else to have this because they're not writing a book about him. but you know I have a sort of uh, a little bit more insight through doing this book and so when it went you know let's take last season for example when yeah that game I mentioned when Green was, was number nine against Spurs that, that week they had I think Tottenham on the Wednesday and Manchester City on the Saturday both league games and they had a, a dodgy result I think it was against Burnley or West Ham and you're thinking, he's got to win these two. He's not possibly going to do it. And he, and he, and he does. not and, and that was sort of reflecting either stuff that I was being told about players he had at Cardiff, where even there, he took a team down, but the players there still talked to him as, as an amazing football man. So what I was hearing um, about him you know, historically previously, you could see it actually being borne out. Just what he, he, he has a way of finding a way to get a win or to sort of take an opportunity. So... Listen, it's all about results, but I do give him easily, and this includes Mourinho, the best chance of anyone post-Ferguson of actually winning this 21st title for the club.
0: Now, you mentioned Mourinho, and uh, I, I, I have to ask you, obviously, as you know, we sit here, uh, he has Spurs playing very well. Um, yes. Is that going to last, Jamie? And is mm. he any different? Understanding this is from a distance, but do you detect anything different at all in the Jose Mourinho we're seeing now compared to the Jose Mourinho we saw at Manchester United, whether it's tactically, I don't think so, but, but in terms of demeanour or temperament, anything like that?
2: I don't, I, you, know, you, know, you know, I think that the key difference is, and I don't think it's in, in his demeanour or any of the things you sort of, um, uh, you know, referring to Orleans. I think he's actually, he's walked into a club that's got, is in a lot better position than United were when he walked into that club with a lot better squad. So that's that for me is the key difference. He walked. He was right finishing second that season when with eighty-one points when City had the you know the record-breaking one hundred points was a heck of an achievement. With if you look back at that squad, you know, it wasn't wasn't good at all. Um, you know, compared to to the one at Spurs where you've got you know he, he's basically sidelined the player in Deli Alley who Pochettino didn't rely on him, but you know it was him and Kane. But but he he's, he's had Hoiberg he had Hoiberg, um on the left back who, who uh, United were interested in and he's got Son and Kane playing um, unbelievably I mean it's just you know it's you know in the sort of annals of the Premier League and going back previously like the old first of it's got to be one of the best partnerships you know it's up there ever sort of thing along with sort of, I don't know Ian Rush and Kenny leash for example so I, I just think he's got a better squad there so therefore he's getting better results and therefore he's happier I think. It's interesting, this. I've got to say, other than the two clubs I cover, which, by the way, I don't support any of them, but I always want them to do well, I would love to see him do it at Spurs. I love a redemption story or a comeback story in sport. It's kind of why I fell in love with sport when I was a boy. You know, we liked this sort of fairy tale aspect. And so I do think there'd be a little bit of a fairy tale about Mourinho doing it, especially at Spurs. who haven't won, I think they've only ever won one title, which is 1961. Um, I'd love to see that happening. As I say, if United or City can't do it, and I think he's got a really good chance. I think they've got the right manager. But a bit like Fernandes, you know, if one of those two, you know, United, I mean, if one of those two get injured, Son or Kane, it'd be interesting to see. You'd like to think that Mourinho could find a way, but, you know, they are basically the difference, really, for Spurs. I would say, look at Liverpool, though. They've lost Van Dyke, they've lost uh, uh, Joe Gomez. I think they might have a couple of other yeah, keepers now, isn't he, at the moment? But look at how well they're playing. I mean, you know, he has built a squad and a way of playing, a team ethic, um, you know, approach, a strategy, however you want to, you know, clock with this, obviously. And it's just very impressive. So I, I think they look ominous to be honest look
1: Jamie Jackson, Manchester football correspondent at The Guardian and also a novelist. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Jamie Jackson, uh, with a double underscore at the end. Jamie, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for your insights. A huge week for, uh, for Manchester uh, with uh, yes. Red Bull, Leipzig and then the, the Derby coming up. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be following along on Twitter. Thank you.
2: Thank you, gentlemen.
1: Coming up next, Tim Laiwiki, MLSE president. He was in charge when Greg Vanny was put into the TFC managerial position. Why Greg was the right choice and why it worked out so well for the Reds. That's next on A Kick in the Grass. It was an unexpected move, but Greg Vanney left his post as Toronto FC manager last week, uh, a job that he took over at the end of the 2014 season, cleaning up the pieces of the bloody big deal and taking this franchise forward to now what we see as one of the model clubs in MLS a man who put a lot of these pieces together Tim MLS MLSE president now joins us on a kick in the grass thanks for this tim how are you
3: uh glad to join everybody and uh my best wishes for the holidays to everybody in toronto uh,
1: absolutely it's um uh, it it was a bit uh it was a bit Unexpected to see Greg Vanny step down from his post as uh, Toronto FC manager. We've heard a lot of different people talk about the impact he's had at the club. Uh, You were the president at the time he was uh, put into this post. Um, What do you remember of that time when Greg Vanny came up uh, for the position as Toronto FC manager?
3: Well, Greg played for us at the Galaxy when um, I was the president of the Galaxy as part of uh, AEG. And so I knew Greg well. And he was, you know, sometimes you kind of look at the defensemen and they're, they're the thinkers back there on the game, the way it's unfolding, the positions and the style of play that each and every team is going to come and attack you with. And I always looked at Greg and thought he was like a sponge. He, he just was amazing what he would absorb from the coaches, from the other players, from the other team. And I always had a great respect for his discipline and his um, focus on the game and the strategy of the game. And so I I knew Greg was going to be a good coach and he had a lot of success with what he was doing on youth development for places like um, Salt Lake. And I thought in particular that Robin and him presented a really good pair and a really good balance. So when Tim B., wanted to make a change. Um, I I was a big fan of Greg's, and we obviously had him in our system, and there was a reason he was in our system. And so it was a really natural step, and it's what we always thought was going to happen. We didn't really look at anybody else. It was really focused on we were going to develop from within, and Greg was within the system and understood the academy. so. I I was not surprised by Greg's ability to create an environment and a system in which brought a lot of success to TFC. And I think in particular, Bill Manning did a really good job of enhancing that, extending that and really getting as much out of that run as you could possibly get out of that run. And I think they did a great job, but I also think that, whether it be players, whether it be coaches, there there's a timing and a timeline and a certain life expectancy on on all of this, and so it doesn't necessarily shock me that there is a moment in time now where Bill and Ali had to make a decision and have to maybe I, I never want to call it a rebuild, but I certainly think there there's always a time to reconsider, restructure, and refocus. And that clearly is what they're going through now. And so if I were a TFC fan, I'd have fond memories about the success that Greg created under his leadership. I'd uh, wish him the best because he will continue to do well. But I also think this is a good moment in time for TFC to um, realign itself with what it has to do in order to continue to be competitive and be a dynasty kind of franchise.
0: You know, Tim, one of the things that, that really impressed me about the way you came in and the, the culture you created around TFC is as someone who, who followed the team from a distance to that point. It seemed at times as if, you know, MLSE had a lot of money and it almost seemed as if they were i'm not going to say they were played for suckers by people like jurgen klinsman that's that's not necessarily fair but they were kind of always they were looking for this magic elixir you know they they were looking for something that would instantly bring success and you know when you came in you seemed to focus on people who understood mls and understood that just because something worked at iax or or Germany, or or wherever. It wasn't necessarily going to work in MLS. What, What in particular were you focused on
3: in that regard? Well, you guys know this, success is not a mistake. Success happens because of hard work and a game plan and a vision. And in particular, success happens when you got everybody in the boat rowing in the same direction. And that was part of the issue is I had felt uh, with TFC, and, and Larry agreed, um, they, they they bounced around in knee to the quickest and best next thing without a long-term vision and plan. And that's not how it works. Um, and the in Major League Soccer, it's a different kind of game with a different kind of player. And I guess the example I'd use I, everyone always marveled about the run we had at the Galaxy and about David Beckham. And as, as great as David Beckham was as to the exposure he brought the sport and the tenacity he created for the Galaxy, the guy that was the key to that whole run, and Bruce Arena will, will tell you this, was Robbie Keane. Because he was the right player for Major League Soccer. He, here was a guy sitting on the bench at Tottenham who was one of the top ten scorers, active players in all of the premier league but he was built for indoor soccer for uh, pardon me major league soccer he was built for the kind of game the physicality and the kind of um attacking game that we had to create with our sport and so some leagues and some development systems ultimately get caught up in the way they do it where they're coming from doesn't always work and so success not only means hard work and everybody getting in the boat and rowing in the same direction it also means you got to be honest about what you're where you're at who you are and how you need to improve and the thing that TFC needed was some loving care where they weren't the third or fourth priority they were just as important as the Raptors or the Leafs and that in particular we were going to build a system that everybody was committed to that would be successful in major league soccer Greg was the perfect coach for that. He understood Major League Soccer. He played in it. He was successful in it. He grew up in a winning organization. He grew up underneath the tutelage and the wings of very successful coaches. And I think he also understood that ownership, uh, Larry Tannenbaum, Bell, and Rogers were going to make a huge commitment towards um, the environment we were going to create. Interestingly enough, that training center is one of the best in Major League Soccer. So they had already done some really wonderful things. But we, we just needed more. We needed better players, a better system, a better stadium, and um, a better environment so that everybody understood trophies were the only thing that mattered. And we were prepared to do what we had to do and be as patient as we had to be in order to get there.
1: Well, I I do remember um, in, in 2014, you know, the way that that it all came about. Uh, Ryan Nelson and and Tim Vespachenko having a bit of a spat in the media as as Ryan Nelson was was removed from the coaching position and, and Vanny put in. Um, and, and it was at the time it it felt for everybody like oh, same old TFC again, and this was the Jermaine Defoe season. But you know, instead of um, you know blowing it all up uh, and and you just you reassess it and went went after Sebastian Javinko, and you stayed with with Greg Vanny as as the new manager. And I, I think what was really interesting to me at the time, Tim, is Greg had a great ability to connect with the star player, but also you know the young academy player that he needed to fill in a certain amount of minutes every single year and grow that player at the same time, all while trying to, you know. Realize the vision of being an MLS Cup-winning team. Um, it it really is a very difficult task for any coach, but especially in MLS with all the the different cap configurations you have to
3: have. Yeah, I, I think Greg, because he was a player, he understood how to communicate to players, and because he had been in systems like the Galaxy, where you know they they had the star of stars. And the thing I always admired Bruce Arena for is when we brought him into the galaxy um, to take over, we, had, we, had, we did not have a lot of success initially with David. Bruce came in and knew how to deal with David, but he also knew how to deal with the young kids. And so I, I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of Bruce Arena and Greg, and I think Greg learned from guys like Bruce. So he came in and he understood <clears throat> Seba was Seba. I had to deal with him in a certain way, in a certain style because he was world-class. I think the, the guy that Greg probably bonded with and formed a partnership with better than anyone was actually Michael Bradley. And I think it, Michael ultimately was the guy that would, they, there's a reason they call him the general. <clears throat> he took Greg's philosophy and style, and he was able to be out there on that pitch to the other 10 guys and make sure that he was the keeper of that style and and Greg's vision for the kind of play and style that he wanted TFC to become. And I think Michael also helped in the locker room where he was coming from world-class clubs at a world-class level, and he knew how to deal with the young kids, and he knew how to deal with the stars, and he was a good-sounding board and another good voice for Greg in that locker room. Seba was just a great kid. And he, he bought into the system, and Greg knew how to treat him a little special because he was a special player. But I also think the relationship between Greg and Robin was special, the other assistant coaches, the whole – look, that organization was a pleasure to be around because we got rid of the drama, and everybody was on the same page. <clears throat> and everybody from the equipment team to the medical team to the rehab team – To the people that work in the locker room and the hallway for security, they were all together. They they had fun. I was talking to Robbie Keane about this the other day. You not only had to have a good team and a good coach and a good philosophy, you got to have everybody protecting each other like a family and protect each and have each other's back. That organization had each other's back, and they were united, and they had a cause, and they had a focus, and they were fun to be around because they enjoyed each other's company. They knew they were in a special moment and they were committed to making sure they took advantage of it. I I loved that organization and that team and to Bill Manning's credit, he kept that going for a very long period of time. And I, I'd have faith they're They will, they will come out of this better than they've been in the last few years. And with a renewed focus and hunger to win trophies again, Last
0: question from me, uh, Tim. Uh, We are, of course, nearing the end of 2020, uh, hopefully coming out of this pandemic. From your point of view, how has Major League Soccer weathered this particular storm? And in general, in general, how do you think pro sports in North America has weathered the storm? And I I understand that's a broad ranging question, but you're the perfect person to ask it or to answer it. I'm sorry.
3: I think. We've learned how to survive. anyone that says they've they've really, you know, I know there are people like Amazon that have done well in the middle of this because we've changed the way we buy things, get it. But I'd say for sports as a whole and the leagues as a whole, you never want to go through anything like this. You never want to see the pain, the inconvenience, um, the dysfunction of what we've all had to deal with. And we unfortunately have probably another six months of this, before we get it behind us once and for all. But I I think to the credit of first the commissioners and then the players, because it had to be a partnership, I think every league figured out how to kind of reinvent itself and reinvent the experience and do the best they could under the circumstances they were provided. Major League Soccer was really the first one back in, in the bubble, And to the credit of Don Garber and the management of the teams, they they did well. They had a bubble experience with zero COVID outbreak. And then they went back to traveling and overcame some of the hurdles they had to overcome, i.e. Toronto and and playing in in New York. And they figured out a way to survive. So what I'd call it is maybe a textbook on survival and trying to make the best of a very difficult situation. But like everyone um, in your audience and all of us that are in the business and fans of the business, we're all anxious to get on to 21 and put this behind us. I think what will happen is when the day comes where we are at 100% audience and we do get to get back to that amazing environment at BMO Field and the amazing fans that uh, the TFC fans are, I think we'll appreciate the moment and we'll appreciate that environment and we'll appreciate the right to go and participate in sporting events and musical events. And so we, I think if one we've survived, thank God. And number two, we all should take a step back and thank the dear Lord and and God for an opportunity now to cherish the moments coming and they're going to come back. And I know for one, I'm going to go live life to the fullest because I have a new appreciation for what we had and what we're about to be given again. And I'll never look past it again. And um, that special environment that TFC has with that fan base, that's going to come back. And my guess is Bill and Allie are going to do a very good job of making sure they stay at the highest competitive level in the Eastern Conference to compete for championships. Because I know Bill in particular believes What really matters is the trophies you put in that case and the style in which you do it.
1: Tim, uh, well said. Uh, We really appreciate you making time for us today and uh, going down memory lane a little bit. Thank you.
3: Stay safe, be healthy, and happy holidays, guys. Thank you. There is
1: uh, Tim Laiwiki. Jeff, um, a lot of names are out there right now uh, for who is next as Toronto FC manager, but... Now, this, this does feel like, I mean, it's obvious, big shoes to fill, uh, not a lot of confidence that it's going to be an easy job for Bill Manning and Allie Curtis to figure out.
0: No, because it's kind of an odd, it's kind of an odd time for TFC, and I think you heard, you heard Tim Lewicki mention that. I, I don't know what you would describe their current status as being. Is it a rebuild? Probably not. Retooling? Yeah, maybe that sounds kind of, you know, that sounds kind of a little retooling, just sort of catch-all reset. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if reset is the word, but I, I think what what has to happen, and Tim hit the nail on the head here. I think Bill Manning and Ali Curtis have to look at their team with a from a a a, a purely analytical through a purely analytical prism. Now that Greg vanny has gone, you can't have any emotion attached to this thing. You've got to decide, okay, who do we need to keep moving forward? What areas do we need to address? Who can we bring in that can continue the success we've had or sort of not mess up the fundamentals behind the success that we've had? And we had Ali Curtis and Writer's Block, and I found it interesting that Ali was pretty clear that he is going to cast a wide net here, that he wasn't necessarily going to focus on somebody with MLS experience. You know, we've heard, uh, you know, already Paulo Sousa, uh, Portuguese, uh, as, as being linked with the job. And, and Ali was pretty clear that he is going to entertain and in fact has already spoken to some international candidates for this position. So I think that'll tell us a lot about where TFC needs to go my hope, Danny, is that they keep in mind the things Tim Lewicki said, though. You you have to have somebody who understands what it is going to take to keep players happy in MLS. Like, they cannot go down the road of hiring the big name from some European program. They, it, it, It's got to be a hire who understands how you need to coach to have success in MLS. And it's a great job. I think uh, when we spoke to, to Ali Curtis, one of the things he said is from talking to people, this is clearly one of the best jobs in MLS. And I think if you talk to Greg Vanny, he would tell you the only job in MLS that is better than this is probably coaching the Galaxy, which is where I think a lot of us think he's going to end up. So I think if they take that approach, they'll be fine but you know Bill Manning's involved in the process here and and that has to give Toronto FC fans uh, a lot of a, a lot of confidence because as much as we celebrate Tim Lewicki Bill Manning's been very much the bridge between the various eras of success at TFC so i think most fans are most fans are, are after the initial disappointment i think now you're starting you're starting to hear fans get excited you know now the discussion is Oh my god, they Greg Vanny's going. It's moved beyond that to hey, what can we who can we get in here? What's this team going to look like? And I you know, when fans come back into the stands, it's not an entirely bad thing, Danny, to give them kind of a fresh perspective and give them a fresh fresh coat of paint in the product. And I, and I and I think that's what we're going to see from Toronto FC.
1: Well, Tim Lewicki had a big part in in getting TFC to where it is now. Tim Bezwhitanko had a big part in it, but so and, and so did Greg Vanny. You know, they just they needed a manager that understood MLS, they needed a manager that wasn't knee-jerk, that wasn't going to freak out every time there was a, a terrible loss. And, look, there was a few of them, especially in his first you know, full season there with, with Sebastian you know, I remember they lost to a nine-man San Jose team.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, yes. you know, There, there was uh, the, the, the awful playoff game in, in Montreal at Stad Saputo uh, where they got uh, just manhandled by, by Montreal. And then obviously 2016, things things really started to take shape under Vanny. But they just they needed somebody who was going to take a, a, a patient approach uh, to, to building this squad and building mm-hmm. it brick by brick by brick. And they got that at all those levels, at the president level, at uh, the GM level with Bezbachenko, and then at coaching level with Greg Vanny. The other big thing about this is there's no succession plan for Michael Bradley. And as as you heard Tim say, you know, and, and it was apparent when 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 I covered TFC, you know, there was the coach on the field and that was Bradley and there was the coach on the touchline. And that was that was Greg Vanny, And that cohesion that they had was was paramount in growing this club and building that culture from within uh, that that saw this team go from laughingstock to model franchise. And I, I don't know what the succession plan is for Michael Bradley. But, um, you know, I think you're starting to see the years and the mileage start to wear on him a little bit. And I don't know if he can handle the same load that he has been handling uh, for TFC for the last couple of years. And Altidore is a question mark, too. So there's a lot here Mm -hmm. for TFC.
0: And I'm just going to say one more thing just very quickly before we move on, because this is hugely important. The other thing Greg Vanney and Michael Bradley gave TFC is they were personalities and spokesmen that every media outlet in the city actively sought out. Like if you got a call from TFC said, hey, we might have Michael Bradley available. If you're a talk show host like I'm in, like I am, you drop what you're doing. You say, we'll make it work. Same thing, Greg Vanney. Always, always, always an insightful interview, a terrific salesman for the team. Those two gentlemen allowed TFC to get a really, pronounced foothold in the Toronto media market that's not always easy but both of them were widely sought after interviews both of them understood the responsibility that came with their positions uh, as as coach and and skipper of that team and and that's that's something the new person again if I'm TFC I got to be aware of that this is a big sports market it's a crowded sports market and you need guys. You need people who people want to hear from. And and that's something about Michael Bradley and Greg Vanny that can never, ever, ever and should never, ever be under, undersold is just how important they were to giving TFC a footprint in this city.
1: Uh, you're 100% right on that, and I've noticed it more uh, being, in, in being around Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, to have a, a, a big voice... That also speaks our language, um, because you know, in a in a world game where you get Spanish influence, whatever it might be, Italian, anything else, um, to have a big voice for your team, uh, it, it it's huge to get uh, the the recognition of the market. And I feel a lot of MLS teams don't really have that, but it was hugely important for TFC to have that with Michael Bradley uh, and, and Greg Vanney and Josie Altador. Dan Riccio, Jeff Blair, when we come back, injury time to close out the show here A Kick in the Grass. Another huge week in the Kick in the Grass Fantasy League. Mark Atkinson, 90 points taking the mantle this week a huge haul uh, as uh, he's climbing up the table is uh, was a newcomer to the league and he's making his way up he had Raheem Sterling as his captain Son Hyung min and Harry Kane along with Mo Salah as uh, the big parts of his lineup uh, also got goals from Kurt Zuma and Susek so goals everywhere stop for Mark it. Atkinson's side stop it This week Uh, you want to join in uh, and maybe get a shout out here on a kick in the grass, head to premier league.com, click the fantasy tab and use the code P P I B D six champions league. A little different this week, Jeff Wednesday and Thursday is when the fixtures are. And on Wednesday we get Juventus Barcelona and we did not get Messi Ronaldo in the last fixture between these two because Ronaldo was out with COVID-19 we're hoping to see them this week play against each other in what, uh, I mean, for from a club perspective, and maybe ever, maybe their last competitive match, as uh, I guess we just don't know when it might happen again.
0: Are we really sure we want to see them against each other? <laughs> you're, you're certain about that, are you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, boy, I, I don't know, man. Look, uh, Barcelona is certainly not must-watch TV anymore. What uh, the this is the worst position they've been in after ten games since '71. They're they're yeah. they're not going to win La Liga, no team has come back from this deficit to win La Liga, and and, and Barcelona is just simply not good enough. And I mean, look, I think Juve is on the right track. Uh, I, I I truly believe that. Uh, Barcelona, Danny. They're I mean, we're talking a 2 or 3 year rebuild here, not one transfer window, not two. We're talking a 2 or 3 year rebuild. And the other thing with Barca, they're just not interesting anymore. Like their off-field drama is boring. Yeah. That's how bad things have become there.
1: It's uh it, it it is rough, and Messi was trying to leave the Titanic it seems before it fully sunk. Uh, it did not happen for him this summer and i and i'll stand by what i said over the course of the summer uh they they would have been better off uh both sides moving on and mm-hmm. um obviously that's a a huge move and messi brings in a lot of money to the club and they've got a lot of uh money issues right now but uh this fixture not what it was uh a few years ago we'll see what happens midweek Uh, It is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. We are a kick in the grass. You can always send questions for the show at Dan underscore at SN Jeff Blair on Twitter. We do appreciate it. For producer Canberra and my co-host Jeff Blair, I'm Dan Riccio. This has
3: been a kick in the grass.